Please turn back to page 1171 in your Bibles. And as you do turn back to page 1171, when Alison finished reading Galatians chapter 5 and read verse 12, you all very happily and joyfully responded, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Did you really not wince at that last verse? Did you really? As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Now, it's because I think it is the word of the Lord that I can actually preach from it. For you see, it's terribly straight. In fact, if you actually take the Greek, it says, castrate yourself. Make yourself a eunuch. And actually, Paul speaks like this because he feels very deeply. He's being coarse, apparently. He's being rude, apparently. But he's actually speaking truth. You see, what he's getting at are people who wanted to go back and say to these new Christians, you've really got to become Jews and get circumcised and go the whole hog. And he says, okay, why not do it properly? Why not, like the pagan religions, castrate yourself, make yourself a eunuch? You'd be very special then. And he speaks like that because he feels so deeply. Now, before I get any further, I want to try to point out Paul speaks like that because he loves. Please, can we get away from this idea that anybody who speaks out the truth with conviction and sometimes, shockingly so, sometimes, sometimes doesn't love? Oh, the people who don't love are the nice people who will never disturb anybody. And, of course, we, we don't care about people. We won't disturb them. It's because he loves that he speaks that way. And the whole letter to the Galatians is full of it. If you've been studying through the series recently... It's full of it. It's the only real letter of Paul that he never says thank you at the beginning. Even writing to the Corinthians who were a rum lot and he spent half his time telling where they'd gone wrong, he still spent the first chapter saying thank you, or a lot of it. But the Galatians, it's red hot. He goes straight into it. It's here, for example, in chapter 2 that you get the, the uh, uh, word about Peter and Paul having an eyeball-to-eyeball confrontation because Paul believed Peter had moved away from the gospel. He didn't like confronting Peter. They were brothers in Christ. But the gospel mattered more than being nice to your fellow apostle. And uh, in chapter 1, he dares to say that if anybody preaches another gospel, they are accursed. Unless you hadn't got the message, he says the same verse twice. Galatians 1, 8 and 9 are an exact repetition. He's saying the same thing because he wants to drive it home. He doesn't say we must think about it, we must listen to them, we must discuss it. They are another gospel, so they are accursed. In chapter 3, he's talked about Christians being bewitched. So I think you're getting the message. Paul feels strongly. He feels strongly because it's all about gospel freedom. And that's the passage for, I've been given for tonight. You see the word freedom comes twice in verse 1. It's emphatic, it's the very first word in the Greek, and it comes twice, repeats itself. Freedom, we've been set free, and freedom is the most difficult thing in the world. Often it's an illusion, isn't it? I've been pondering the fact that students are doing exams and are finishing it, seems a long time since I did exams. It's nice, there is life beyond exams, there is. And it's a long time since I finished doing exams. I can always remember, this is what happens when you get older, you do remember these things, 
that I, I had it all planned out. What do you do when you finish exams? Now, you may not think my idea was wonderful, but I decided uh, that I would spend the whole week after exam before I went home, and I would every day go to the parks in Oxford, and I would watch cricket for nothing. Now, you may think doing exams is better than doing that, but you may, uh, to me it was the most wonderful, wonderful thing to do. Other of my friends had rather more dramatic things they would do when they, passed, uh, when they finished exams, and yet often once you got into it, it, wasn't, it didn't actually seem all that exciting. By the time it was ended, I almost wanted to go back to the exams again. They were at least exciting stuff. Um, the cricket in the parks wasn't so good. Um, or on a more serious level, if you lived in Zimbabwe today, would you still think it's wonderful that they got their independence? Oh, it was. It was right that they got their independence. And those were great days, heady days, when Mugabe was going to bring independence and freedom from colonial rule. And if you lived there, that was something wonderful. But would you think that? Today? I doubt it. Freedom, you see, is a very difficult thing to live with. And so Paul says in this verse 1, please don't go back again because all religions that offer you Jesus plus, and nobody nowadays is talking to Christians to get circumcised again, but I assure you there's plenty of Jesus plus around. That is, the gospel's all right, provided you have something on top of it. You can't just live with the gospel of God's love in Christ the wonder of the cross and the glory of his uniqueness. Well, that's okay, but you need something more. And that's a yoke of slavery. Did you notice the, the first reading in John chapter 8, why we had that reading? Because, you see, Jesus was offering them freedom. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And you possibly noticed that they said, we've never been slaves to anybody, we Israelites. They'd forgotten the history, hadn't they? Hundreds of years they were slaves. Hundreds of years in Egypt. And you may recollect that when they got out from Egypt and they're travelling the towards the promised land in the wilderness, they often wanted to go back. Manna was a bit dull in the wilderness. Do you remember what they said? They said to them, oh, when we were in Egypt we had cucumber and garlic. Can you imagine the joy of going back to cucumber and garlic? But they remembered all that and they forgot the yoke of slavery. They wanted to go back. It was easier. I want, if I may then, to try to get out over to you today just how important it is that we shouldn't let ourselves go back so that we can stay free. There was a famous Irishman. Now, he, wasn't, he could be rude. A man said about W.P. Nicholson, a great Irish evangelist whom I never personally met, but I've heard him on tape. Somebody said they never thought a man could be full of rudeness and the Holy Spirit at the same time until they met W.P. Nicholson, who was a very rude man in the way he spoke, but he got people to listen. He was a, a good evangelist in the north of Ireland for a long time. And he had one lovely phrase. It's not a rude phrase. It's a lovely phrase. If the devil cannot stop you being converted, he'll get you diverted. And I think that's really quite a profound statement. If he can't stop you getting converted, get you diverted. Okay, the devil says, you become a Christian, you're converted. Now, let's make sure we get you off the track. Let's make sure we get you with some other kind of religion. Let's get you caught up with some other kind of movement. We'll get you away from the centrality of the cross. That's one of the devil's best weapons. So, Paul says, let's not go back to this yoke of slavery. May I suggest to you, Paul was actually battling with, on two fronts. 
On the one front, he was battling with those, and that's the main thrust of Galatians, who wanted to add to the gospel, who wanted to say, you must now become circumcised and become Jews, and then you'll be proper. And he fought against that. We've been seeing it during this series. On the other hand, there were those who then would say, ah, well, if we're always saved by grace and none of us are good enough, well, uh, let's, let's live as we like. Let's enjoy life. We can go on sinning so that grace may abound. And Paul had to say, God forbid that we should ever go that way. So on two fronts he was battling. But he was also battling on two fronts of where we still battle, of liberal teaching. On the one hand, there was a liberal teaching which we, we face and we battle with today, which does not take the word of God seriously, which won't submit to the authority of the word of God. And we all know what that means, that modern morality, well, I had a debate over radio some years ago with the gentleman who's the secretary of the gay and lesbian Christian movement, so-called, and I quoted Romans 1 to him, and he made the quite straightforward statement, if Philip Hacking will quote Romans 1 at me, with there's no point in discussing. We know more about sexuality than Paul could ever know. Romans 1 has nothing to say to the church today. End of conversation. For well, that kind of liberalism means we have destroyed the Christian gospel. It is another gospel. So on that one we battle, but also we battle about tendencies that happen. Have you yet heard of the Florida fire, the Lakeland revival? Well, uh, you will if you haven't. If you want to know more about it, get to church on the newspaper, page 12 or something, and read a little bit about it. It's happening around us. It's yet another movement which suggests, yes, okay, it's good to believe the gospel. There's something new and exciting happening which will give you a real shortcut, a wonderful experience. Just be careful. Always, always test these movements, and I've been long enough in the tooth now to have seen them come and go often. What do they say about the final authority of Scripture? Where do they test their great credentials by? Secondly, how much will they give to the uniqueness of Jesus as the only way to God? And thirdly, what do they say about the centrality of the cross? You try those tests. I long for genuine revival fire that will bring repentance and bring us back where these Christians should have been. But I know the devil and all his works, and he'd love to produce those things that will get us further away from the basics of the gospel. That's why the key verse is verse 7. You see verse 7? You were running a good race. Who cut in on you? Uh, race analogies are often in the New Testament, particularly with Paul. And the idea is that if you're running a race, you've got to keep going. It's very easy to get diverted. Almost exactly this time of the year, uh, 40 years ago, I was a terribly young man, and I came to look at the parish of Christchurch, Fulwood, to see whether or not I liked it. And they looked at me to see whether or not they liked me. And eventually we came to some kind of... Uh, compromise solution and I came. Anyhow, uh, 1968, I remember one of, one of the questions I asked the then church wardens, uh, none of them here now, I asked the church wardens a question, I don't know why I did, but I think I do, I said, do you still have, do you have a Sunday school picnic? To which the answer came, a rather apologetic no. They, they were very apologetic, they didn't have a Sunday school picnic, so I said, please don't apologise, that's one mark in your favour immediately. Uh, I might just come because I had just been to our Sunday school picnic in Edinburgh, where it's my job 
as the then young rector to run the races for the kids on the beach or wherever. Uh, and it was always arranging kids' races was, was, was terribly difficult. You'll see the point in a minute. Terribly difficult. Because, you see, when the children were on a race, the mums, if the children are all right, it's the mums that are a problem. They want all the cameras there ready to take a picture of these kids running the race. And a few dads as well, but most of the mums. And the kids were not run because the mums were all there with their cameras flashing until I got that inspired, wonderful, administrative idea. I took all the mums to, the, to the, where the race is about to end, plonked them there with their cameras, and then went back and started the race. So the little darlings were actually running towards the camera, towards the goal, and all was well. Some of them actually got to end the race. You may have thought that was not of any great significance, but it actually I discovered that some people like these little darlings who are terribly hard to keep going on the race who start off with great enthusiasm, but very quickly, because things divert them, get caught off in bypath meadow, and never, ever make it. So there are three thoughts tonight. There's faith in the beginning, you run, start in the race. There's faith in the ending, verse 5, which is the only uh, real note, eschatological note in Galatians, a note about the end times. Faith in the ending. And finally, most importantly, faith in the continuing. Faith in the beginning. Faith in the ending. Faith in the continuing. The faith in the beginning is a contrast between the dead end, the cul-de-sac, and the living way. Now, the dead end was the yoke of slavery, verse 5, verse 1. Do you remember one of the most wonderful words of Jesus? Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. Wonderful words. He was talking to people who were burdened. Who was he talking to? What was the burden they were going under? The burden of suffering? The burden of bereavement? The burden of depression? No, those things are real. It was the burden of religion. The yoke he offered was easy. He talks more than once about the yoke of their religion. Peter in Acts 15 says, Why do we impose a yoke of slavery? that we could never carry. Tell me, is that what it is to you? For many people, it's a kind of dead-end religion. I'm doing my best. I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to keep certain religious observances. And when you follow it through, if that is true, what's the point of Christ? Look at verse 2. If you get yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. Verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. And I wonder if you remember, a few weeks ago you looked at the end of chapter 2. One of the most chilling words, I think, in Scripture. End of chapter 2, verse 21. If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. It was all a waste of his time. All that agony and that suffering was useless. If, in fact, you can have a kind of religion that gets you there apart from the cross, by good deeds, by religious observance, or by whatever. Now, let me push it a bit further. He is talking therefore in verse 6, in Christ Jesus, verse 6, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Please note, he says that again in chapter 6, verse 15. I should be on that passage in two weeks' time. Neither circumcision nor un uncircumcision means anything. 
what counts as a new creation. Now, please balance it out. On the one hand, there were those who thought they would get there by their, the assurance that they'd been circumcised, they'd kept the law, they were religious people, they were good Jews like Paul was before he was converted. They boasted in their circumcision. What about uncircumcision? Years ago, I heard a very intriguing sermon. It wasn't exactly a sermon I would commend because it wasn't real exposition, but it was intriguing. And it was a preacher preaching the story of the Pharisee and the publican the other way around. Uh, you know what the Pharisee and the publican story is? God said to the Pharisee, I thank you that I'm not like this publican. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But the, the, the other preacher said, preached it the other way around. The publican who said, God, I thank you and I'm not like these Pharisees. I never say my prayers. I don't give anything to the church. I don't depend upon my religious observance. I am a kind of free spirit. Now, you see, Paul says, you don't rejoice in your circumcision or your uncircumcision, your religious acts or your lack of religious acts. Oh, I do meet people who actually, because they despise religious observance, imagine that somehow God will think they're wonderful because they've not been caught up in all this hypocrisy. I assure you, in my years as vicar of this parish, the number of people that said, I don't go to church, they're all hypocrites that go to church. And they were given the suggestion. So I'd always say, well, come and join them and make one more. But that's always an end <laughs> But we did get that from time to time. And this is the dead end. That's the yoke of slavery. No, what, what is the living way? Do you remember when you started on chapter 3? What Paul said at the beginning of chapter 3? Verse 2. I want to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? How did it all begin? How did the Christian life begin? Did you get the Holy Spirit as a, a reward for keeping the law? Did God say, I, I will send the Spirit on these people because they've earned it? No, no. They received the Spirit by responding to the gospel of God's free grace. Faith, verse 6, within Christ Jesus completely. Neither uncircumcision nor circumcision has any value. Faith resulting in love. The living way here, I believe, is the only way for genuine unity in the truth. True unity is found in unity in the gospel. Faith in the beginning. And you could, if you want, pursue this chapter not just about your life and mine, but about the church's life. Faith in the beginning. How did the Christian church begin? How did God begin his blessing in this parish? How does God work? By the preaching of the gospel. How tragic it would be if the church began to look to other ways and sometimes completely alien ways to try to rescue it from its present situation. Faith in the beginning. Secondly, faith in the ending. That's verse 5. Here's the one sort of great no to the future. It's God's gift. And it's our grit, if you like. It's God's gift. By faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Now, please, that's not Paul saying, we are hoping that one day we'll achieve the righteousness. He's saying, we're looking on to the fulfillment. We're looking on to that great day when God will finally say, not guilty. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea great high priest whose name is love whoever lives and pleads for me 
You see, my hope for not guilty in that day, my assurance of the hope of not guilty in that day, is because I'm in Christ and in his righteousness. That is altogether, completely God's gift. And that's why Paul will say, you see in verse 11, that's why he still preached the the cross. And if he preached the cross, that's why he was being, being persecuted. If he ceased to do it, fine. But he preached the cross, which is always an offense to natural man. So the great hope, there's God's gift. Now I tell you, I suppose it's because I've reached the kind of age I am that I visit, I talk to people who, yes, are getting nearer towards the end. Man, you've got to be careful how you use that. There was a time some years ago when a, a lady in our congregation had reached the age of 99 and she'd, her covenant, they had seven-year covenants, her seven-year covenant had run out. And the treasurer went to visit her and said, I, it's nice to see you, I don't suppose you will want to be renewing your covenant, will you? Why not, said the lady of 99. He, he couldn't think of any good reason, apart from the fact she wasn't a little bit 106, she thought. So you have to be careful how you, how you do talk to people of an older age. But I try. And I try to find out what, it, what is it that people actually do depend upon for that hope in that day. There was, in my time, not here in this parish, a, a system called Evangelism Explosion. Have you heard of it? Where you knocked on a door, two by two, and the first question you asked of them was, if you were to die tonight, on what grounds do you think God would invite you into heaven? I always thought it was a rather stark way to start a conversation on the doorstep, but anyway, <laughs> it's rather like the Church of England prayer book says, when the vicar should visit, visits the sick, the, the first question he should ask when he said, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit, the next question he should ask is, has he made you will yet? Which I, again, I, thought, I thought was a rather stark start of the conversation. Well, uh, in the evangelism explosion, you ask this question. Actually, the answer to it is quite significant. And I meet many people, I don't ask them that stark question, who do honestly believe that somehow there will be a place in heaven because they somehow will be better than most people. Vague idea. Okay, I don't claim any great spiritual experience, but I've lived a fairly decent life. Is that how you hope? Or I meet people, this is the uncircumcision bit, I meet people who actually honestly believe that there's nothing beyond and that therefore they won't get heaven, no, but nobody will because there isn't going to be any heaven. And I just say to them, have you, have you worked out, what are you going to say on that day? Just supposing I'm right. And you do stand in faith before God on that day. What are you going to say to him? You can't touch me, God, because I didn't know that you were there. Oh, didn't people tell you? Yeah, but I didn't believe them. I didn't believe them. It bothers me there are so many people whom that's the philosophy who will find themselves facing the awesomeness of hell because they have decided on their own presupposition that there is no such thing. It is an awesome thought. Now, the God's gift is for those of us who've trusted in Christ. That's why the, the cross is central for sinners such as myself. And it can be on the last day before I die, the penitent thief, but what a waste of a life if it's still the last day before I die. That's God's gift. Our grit, if you like. How do we respond? That lovely phrase, we eagerly await through the Spirit. Please note, I haven't got time to push this, but the work of the Spirit in this chapter is all pointing to Christ. It talks later on about living by the Spirit, verse 16, and being led by the Spirit, verse 18, and the fruit of the Spirit. And all these are fitting with verse 5, by faith we eagerly await 
Through the Spirit, he always points, always, always, to Christ in whom is our hope. And we are to be eagerly awaiting. It's the, the athletic word, neck stretched out, longing to reach the goal. Faith in the ending. Finally and most importantly, faith in the continuing. Okay, you began that way. And uh, by God's grace, you'll end that way. What about the, the, the bit in between? Which is rather important, isn't it? May I suggest there are three simple things. There's the dangers, first of all. And the danger in verse 8 to 10 is the danger of somebody bringing in a suggestion that will spread like dough, yeast. In the Bible, with one exception, yeast is always a bad thing. Uh, the one exception being our Lord told the story of the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who hid uh, some measures of dough and it spread and spread. That was good. And the only antidote to the false teaching is the good teaching. But always elsewhere, the yeast is a sign of evil. Jesus said in Mark 8, 15, Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees and the Herodians, it will spread and spread. I have become more domesticated since retirement, and I do a little bit of things. I've not yet gone to the making of bread. Mind you, no, I, I, we've got many people's homes where you can where they make their bread. Well, they don't make bread. It's the machine that makes the bread, as far as I can tell. But some people make their bread. I still prefer Morrison's, but never mind. Uh, they, they make their own bread. So I'm not uh, into that. I'm reasonably domesticated. But what I, I do know that uh, the truth of this verse, in theological terms, how easily things spread bit by bit. Years and years and years ago, the Keswick Convention, the days when I was chairman of the Keswick Convention, we had this famous Bible by Dick Lucas, still alive and still doing a great work, and I shall remember it vividly. He expounded the epistle of Jude, and he pointed out in the exposition of Jude about uh, this man who got fed up with his workplace and decided when he retired, he wanted to blow the place up. He wanted it to fall down. He was so wanted to get his own back. Uh, he had two alternatives. One was uh, the day before he retired to put some Semtex in the foundation to blow the thing up, but that was too complicated. So for the last year of his life, this is the story went on, he went down to the cellar and he took a brick out of the foundation. Every day, and a, a one brick went, and another brick went, and another brick went. And as you do that, then eventually the whole thing will collapse. And Dick Lucas told that story much better than I did. It took a long time to tell it. Um, the point being, if you want to destroy the gospel, there are two ways of doing it. One is to have some great cataclysmic revelation of the untruth and some movement to destroy the gospel, the church, some great radical thing. Or, just saying that certain things don't matter anymore. You don't need to bother about the virgin birth anymore, the historic resurrection, the return of Jesus, sexual purity and morality. Bit by bit, we take them out. Until one day, there's nothing left. It spreads. Now, you see, the danger is it can happen individually. Physically, we have sometimes what they call middle age spread as you get older. You get thicker around the waist. And spiritually, as you get older, some people get thicker around the spiritual waist. And what happens is the doctrine, the movement away from the cross spreads. Beware, watch out for it so carefully. The danger, 
The duty? Well, the duty is simply, verse, verse 1, to stand firm. Don't be a kind of silent majority, being nice, just letting it all happen, desperate you won't rock the boat, desperate not to do anything that might spoil the unity of the church. Do be, do be so careful that you are prepared to stand up and be counted. I do wish the silent majority would wake up and speak up. We allow the pulling out of the bricks of the edifice so often in church affairs going on and we just don't say a thing. And as you watch out for that or you look at this Lakeland solid fire, wait, be sensible. You'll, you'll hear all about it. You really will. I'm already having to counsel somebody who's been caught up in it, so just wait for it. And begin, begin to ask serious questions. What is this saying about this great gospel for which Paul feels so deeply that he will, he, will say, I, he will say things that sound rude to stir us up? And he will dare, he will dare to say something quite strong. You notice in verse 10, he talks about the one who is throwing you into confusion, who will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Be careful. There may be sometimes behind these movements against the gospel names that people know well. And Paul is suggesting that, yes, he may be a person of repute, but don't believe him just because of what he claims to be. He'll pay the penalty one day. Do any of us feel so strongly as that? When Paul in chapter 1 says that anybody who preaches another gospel, let him be accursed, and he meant what he said. That he will be. It's not that, well, it's another, another aspect of truth which is interesting and we must discuss. And here is Paul saying, whatever, whoever it is, don't be led astray by names. The, da the, dan the, the dangers, the duty, and my final D, the delights. I finish on a positive note. The best way to stand firm is by remembering, looking back and remembering the wonder of the grace that brought us to Christ. That's why in a few minutes we're going to sing Amazing Grace. That which changed John Newton. Grace will lead me home. Grace from beginning to grace to, to the end. Look on to that final day and say, how will you stand before God on that day? What will be your hope on that day? And because you know, if you're a genuine believer, it's only because of what Christ did for us on the cross, make sure you stand for that at any cost. And in the meantime, I'm just trans transgressing one little bit to the next verse. In the meantime, do you see what the next verse says? You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Please note, and it makes the paradox more wonderful, it says, rather slave for one another in love. Free? Be a slave. Way back in the Old Testament, there was a way in which if you were a slave and you could claim your freedom, it was possible that you could say to your master, look, I don't want to be free. I'm happy to be your slave. And they will go through and they will pierce your ear Pierced ears today don't symbolize all this, but they will pierce your ear and you will then be a willing slave. I love my master. I will not go out free. Lovely paradox. That is, I am freed 
freed not to do what I want, but what he wants. Not free to do as I please, but free to do as pleases him and pleases the people of God. And I'm freed to go out to serve in real love, genuine love. Yes, like Paul, with all his straight speaking, free to serve one another in love. I am in a moment going to treat you to read a prayer from 1662. I think you deserve a treat like this. I'm going to read it in a moment. And I, uh, the reason I'm going to read this collect is that it's a beautiful collect in which comes the phrase, whose service is perfect freedom. This morning I was preaching at a free evangelical church in Matlock and over a very nice lunch from, uh, served by a lady who was a, a great enthusiast for English cricket and we were able to discuss all sorts of exciting biblical theological issues such as the next test match over, over, over lunch. It was great fun. And, but she's also a closet Anglican. And when I told her I was going to read this collect tonight, she remembered it word for word. And over the lunch we had this collect and I'm going to give you in a minute. And I'm going to read it not because an old collect is a beautiful thing in itself, though it is that. But because this collect sums up better than I can just what I pray for myself and for you and for Christ Church Fullwood, for the Church of England, for the Church of Christ in this land in these testing days in which we live, when our freedom for the gospel is under attack from every angle. I'm going to pray the collect for peace for morning prayer. And as in a minute we bow our heads, I'll pray it and then we'll sing amazing grace and end on a lovely note. Let's just bow our heads for prayer. If you're one of those who remembers prayers off by heart, you can join in if you like. But here is this lovely collect for peace. And just ponder the words. They're easy to say because they're so memorable for many of us. O God, who art the author of peace and lover of concord, in knowledge of whom standeth our eternal life, whose service is perfect freedom. Defend us, thy humble servants, in all assaults of our enemies, that we, surely trusting in thy defense, may not fear the power of any adversaries. Through the might of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.